Welcome to the latest edition of Slam University, our bi-weekly wrestling history podcast hosted by me, Joe Garcia, and joined as always by Malcolm Spinetti. What's up, people? Hey. So, so far we've been doing, I think, a pretty bang-up job with these uh, Slam University episodes. Yeah, I think so, too. I really enjoyed the uh, Andre one, which I'm going to ask the same question to you as I did on the firmware update, Joe. Have you seen Princess Bride yet? Not yet. What the hell, man? Look, it's waited this long. It can wait a little, a little longer. Yeah, that's okay. Once you see it, you're going to be kicking yourself. For <laughs> waiting this long, I tell you. Uh, uh. So, I mean, yeah, we've gotten some pretty nice responses uh, from from friends and family and whatnot, uh, and just the internet at large. I think. Yeah, I've yet to hear a single <clears throat> negative thing. I mean, the closest to a negative thing I've heard is. You mentioned that there was some echoing on mine on one, and that was about it. <laughs> yeah, basically technical issues aside, I think we've been doing pretty well yeah. for ourselves. And we look to continue that upward trend, our meteoric rise, with uh, the subject of this week's episode, which is... Umaga. Uh, Umaga. <laughs> uh, no, no, not not that at all. Rather, Oops. the, the uh, annual uh, magic man that returns for WrestleMania... None other than The Undertaker himself. Oh dear, I'm going to have to re- do some quick research then. Oh, okay, good. Good thing you didn't spend <laughs> No, time. I kid, this is a professional <laughs> show, you know. Uh, and uh, just for the record, Joe, we need to figure out, because if you remember, Hulk Hogan, we split that up into two shows. <laughs> but Taker, I don't know if you realize, been around for a while. A little bit. Yeah, this might have been one where we should have split it up a little bit, because it was pain on Earth, <laughs> or heck on Earth. <laughs> You're like, oh god, I'm not even halfway through. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But Undertaker, what can you say about him, Joe? Why is he so important to the wrestling world? Uh, well, as as so many WWE documentaries have have uh, confirmed for us over the years, uh, especially the Monday Night War on the WWE Network, he's he's one of the the I guess one of the mainstays, one of the foundations of WWE, one of the few people who did not cross over uh, from one promotion to the other uh, during even the most heated of times, uh, and in doing so, put up one of the most illustrious careers uh, in wrestling history, I would say. Indeed, Joe. He's widely regarded as the greatest big man wrestler of all time, as uh, what we talked about with Andre last week, where Andre brought it to a science I would say Undertaker evolved that for present day fantastically. On top of that, he is responsible for co- teaching quite a few people in the back. Like he had a, he helped uh, Kevin Nash with his career. Here, uh, he's helped uh, Big Show has gone on record in several documentaries talking about how Taker would pull him aside multiple times to tell him, "No, that's not how you do it." And uh, helped make him into the wrestler he is today. So he's uh, not only, and on top of that, it's hard to find matches of his that were bad. And we're talking about like a thirty-year <laughs> career right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's. Uh, I would say the Undertaker gimmick is uh, is goofy. I mean, it started as a very, very easy thing to make fun of. Like you think, like when he was cre- <laughs> when they created that character, what in the early nineties? Uh, it's basically something that's out of, like, a bad sitcom episode, like, where you would make up a wrestler, uh, you were going to call him The Undertaker, and uh, he's going to 
dressed like a goofy funeral home dude. And, and I'm happy you brought that up, Joe, because as, as much as people point out how cool that gimmick is, if you had given that to, I want to say, like... Literally 90, anybody else. Yeah, it would have been so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, this was, the Undertaker character was created pretty much at the height of WWF's, like, ridiculous character, like, flood. Where it's like, we have the goon, and Doink the Clown, and the Undertaker, and it could have very easily have gone the way of any of those characters, but because of uh, the the presence that Mark Calloway just has, uh, it was able to not only survive, but thrive in, in a multi-decade career. Oh yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about a lot of the mannerisms he added to the character, because, you know, he could have just as easily just been some doofus who came with a shovel to the ring. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, he would pretend to bury someone in the ring. And, <laughs> but no, he made it so awesome. I, I, more awesome than it had any right to be into a legend. Yeah, and he's molded and shaped this character into what I think is, in my opinion, uh, the greatest wrestling character of all time. I, I, I couldn't argue with that. I mean, yeah, I mean... Especially if we're especially if we're talking about just simply in WWE, yeah, he is the greatest character of all time. And so, without any further ado, let's talk about the man, the myth, the legend, the phenom, the American <laughs> badass, as Booger Red. <laughs> yes, the Big Evil, the Undertaker. It's a lot right. of nicknames. Oh God, I didn't even touch most of them. <laughs> uh, but. Aside from nicknames, he also has a real name, going by Mark William Calloway. He was born on March 24th, 1965, which makes him 49 right now. Going on 50. Going on 50. <laughs> Doesn't look... Uh, he actually does. Uh, <laughs> he very much looks that. Uh, if, you've, if you're a follower of if his wife, Michelle McCool, over on Instagram, you can see that he, he's very, <laughs> he very much looks uh, 50 years old. Yep, thank God for just for men. <laughs> but continue. Uh, he resides in Austin, Texas, despite the fact that he's billed from Death Valley, which is just, just a desert. So <laughs> <laughs> He's been married a few times to Jody Lynn, Sarah Frank, who uh, would be best be remembered as, A, a tattoo across Taker's <laughs> neck, and uh, being involved in a storyline with DDP that made absolutely no sense. And currently is married to uh, the very lovely former diva, Michelle McCool. Is Michelle McCool her real name, by the way? Just a quick tangent here. Or is that uh, just a... I don't know. I didn't look that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Taker has four kids altogether. He is billed as six foot ten, almost seven feet, 299 pounds from Death Valley, as I said. <laughs> He has been wrestling Joe since 1984, so over 30 years now. And and this is something I didn't know. He is of Irish and Native American descent, which explains the pale white skin he has for quite a majority of his career. Uh, I'm, I'm more shocked by the Native American lineage than the Irish lineage, because, I mean, Callaway is pretty obvious, I think. Mm-hmm. And... Never wrestled Tatanka out of respect for that heritage. Uh, important fact. Yeah, that's because, man, uh, <laughs> man, does WWE and WWF have a checkered past with racial caricatures? 
I wonder if that was like the first idea. We'll make you the son of Chief J. Strongbow. No, Undertaker. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like, nah, just give me Undertaker instead. <laughs> uh, I can make that work. Uh, and believe it or not, he was huge into basketball as he played at his high school, Wall Trip High. And Texas Wesleyan, I can't, sorry, folks, can't pronounce that, university. <laughs> I know and, the university, but I also have the same trouble pronouncing that. <laughs> All right, let's just head right into the career. I want to just put in a little disclaimer. Uh, we've talked about kayfabe, in which, uh, you know, wrestlers will be the character, meaning <laughs> they'll be very secretive. Oh, man. Yeah. No and, one is more, more adherent to the laws of kayfabe than the Undertaker. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And which has made finding out information for this episode really difficult because there's, <laughs> there's no books. He doesn't talk on any of his doc for except for a very, very brief period. He doesn't yeah. talk on documentaries even. So you you rarely get insight <laughs> on that on that point. Uh, you What you basically get from him is just pure, unadulterated hearsay about yeah. his career. So it's a little difficult here. Yeah. But, and that's why I made that disclaimer at the beginning of our very first episode because you know wrestling that's what it what it is is you know it's it's showmanship it's basically lying to the public for <laughs> for the sake of entertaining them uh, and like even in the most and no matter who you're researching for the sake of something like this there's always going to be a lot of exaggeration and hearsay uh, but with the character so adherent and and to to, to kayfabe as the Undertaker uh, it's that makes it even doubly more tricky. Uh, I actually watched a video from from a raw episode from I don't know, I forget how many years ago. Like after they'd been after the show had gone off the air, but they were still filming. Uh, <laughs> Undertaker was in the ring with like Booker T, Goldust, uh, and Booker T was doing you know spinner Rooney's in the ring, and everybody wanted the Undertaker to do a spinner Rooney. And eventually, like everyone would come out of the back trying to goad him into doing a spinner Rooney. And God bless him, he just is like nope. Nope. He ended up just storming off <laughs> and riding his bike out of the of the arena before he he'd actually done a spinner. When he, it was great. It's one of my favorite videos. It's it's like fifteen minutes long uh, on YouTube, but it's great. Oh gosh, uh, but yeah, it's a. And on top of that, uh, his dedication to character, which we'll get into more more uh, when we get to, to the WWE part, uh, is just amazing. Like. You, it's rare you even see just an interview with him as just like Mark Calloway. So uh, this was difficult, but we got you the information. So let's let's go. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, even uh, like even on interviews for like the Mighty Night Wars, he's mostly just kind of repeating things that you kind of already know, but he's just kind of backing it up with the weight of this is the Undertaker also confirming something you already know. Like to give you an example, there was like, they were doing like this retrospective on Survivor Series. And wrestlers would commentate on their matches. And, like, you would hear Sean or you would hear Brett, and they were just talking about the match. Like, you would, uh, if I was sitting with Brett and we were watching the match and he was just talking about it, that's what it sounded like. <laughs> but then we get to Undertaker and they're watching uh, him beating Hogan. You know, of course, leaving out Ric Flair throwing in a chair and all that. <laughs> That, and he's all undertakered up. He's like, they said I couldn't do it. To be the man, I had to beat the man. And on Survivor Series 91, I beat the man. <laughs> and he's there with Paul Bearer, full Undertaker guard. Like, okay, dude, calm down. <laughs> it's like, do you have any additional insight, bro? <laughs> like, beyond what we've already seen for ourselves? No? Okay. Hogan rested in peace. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> 
But God bless him. God bless him. That, that's one of the major reasons he's had such the career he has. Anyway, jumping right into it. He made his debut in 1984 for World Class Championship Wrestling as Texas Red. He, <laughs> he lost, true fact, his debut match was against another wrestling legend, Bruiser Brody, which uh, sadly he lost. He left the promotion in 1988 and joined the Continental Wrestling Association. He debuted and was managed by Dutch Mantel, which some of you will know as Zeb Coulter, as the master of pain. I think under, I think Taker just loves these silly gimmicks. <laughs> the, and the gimmick was pure 80s here, as uh, his character was a former prison e- inmate who had just served five years after killing two men in a fight. On his second match, after his victory, he called out the United States Wrestling Association, USWA, which had just merged with CWA around the time he signed, World Heavyweight Champion Jerry Lawler to an impromptu match. Booger Red, I mean, Master of Pain, <laughs> destroyed <laughs> Jerry Lawler until Dutch called him off saying they had accomplished what they needed to do. Lawler then agreed to a title match on April 1st. And holy cow, the Master of Pain beat him and won the title on April 1st. Uh, He held the belt for a magnificent three weeks until Lawler won it back. While performing, he also wrestled as the Punisher. Sadly, I don't think it was... (laughs) Did did he murder anybody in the righteous (laughs) rage? (laughs) Sadly not. He didn't come in and... uh, in a wagon full of guns and what have you either. That would have been epic, though. But while performing uh, as this character, he also won the WCWA Texas Heavyweight Championship. Ugh, that's a long name. That's awful. I know. On October 5th, 89, defeating when Eric Embry forfeited the title. Anyway, from here, believe it or not, in all the times that I've heard many times that he's never jumped to WCW, but... He did start in WCW, as he would sign in 1989. He joined WCW in as a heel character in 89, named Mean Mark Callis. <laughs> he actually got the name in a conversation with Terry Funk. The ga- character was portrayed as a morbid character, as Jim Ross disgui- described him as liking snakes, listening to Ozzy Osbourne, and other not entirely weird stuff, but whatever. <laughs> Once again, it's the 80s, 90s now. He enjoys hot sauce in his chili. <laughs> oh my god, is that a dark dark leather jacket? My god. <laughs> he actually gained some potential fame by replacing Sid Vicious in a, in a very popular t- heel team in WCW called the Skyscrapers with uh, Danny Spivey, who would later go on to be, uh, do you know, Joe? No. Oh, he would go on on to be... Oh, I can't. Oh, my God. I, I'm blanking. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is going to be bugging me me for the rest of the day. But, uh, like, you know, remember that character who had a very short stint, but everyone loved him? You know, like, he kept saying, you know what I mean? No. Waylon Mercy. That's who he went... Who, that's who it was. I was thinking of this theme music there. Anyway... Now, great news, folks. If you're curious to see WCW Undertaker, you can, because some of his matches are actually on the network. He's on Clash of Champions 10, 
where he where it was supposed to be the skyscrapers versus the road warriors in a street fight. However, Danny Spivey decided to leave the company, so he was replaced by random big dude in a mask. They would go <laughs> local <on> to, talent. <laughs> oh dear, uh, they went on to lose pretty abruptly to the road warriors. Clash of Champions 10, it wasn't at, uh, they didn't wrestle at Clash of Champions, but they beat up the Road Warriors at Clash of Champions, which set up the match at WrestleFest 90, which is on the network. Mm. Eric, but once again, uh, they did, lost the Road Warriors in quick fashion. After this, Mark went into a singles career with Paul E. Dangerously yeah. as his manager. <laughs> this would not be the last time that him and Paul E. He uh, cross paths. Man, I hope when Paul Heyman eventually goes into the Hall of Fame, he goes into in as Paul E. Dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Alundra, if uh, Medusa is going in as Alundra Blaze, I doubt that's going to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, hey, Mark went into a singles career, and he beat Johnny Ace at Capital Combat, <laughs> otherwise known as John Laurinaitis of WWE fame. <laughs> he wrestled for the and uh, in the big one here, he wrestled for the NWA U.S. title at the Great American Bash 1990 against Lex Luger, but sadly lost it there too. But it was interesting. Like you could see little bits and pieces of what would be the Undertaker. Like he does the choke, like the Undertaker minus the eye roll, of course. But it, uh, yeah, blitz and pieces were there. He was pretty competent in the ring for his age. After this. WCW decided to decline on re-signing Mark. wonder if they're kicking themselves <laughs> to this day about this. Uh, in between this and what comes up next, he wrestled in, of course, New Japan Pro Wrestling, because that's where the money is, as Punisher Dice Morgan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Undertaker was really a step up from these names right now. My gosh. <laughs> yeah. He returned to USWA to participate in a unified World Heavyweight Championship tournament. He defeated Bill Dundee in in round one, but then would go down and defeat to Jerry Lawler in the quarterfinals. And just like that, Joe, we're here. In October 1990, he signed into the WWF. Now, here's a little key fact that people forget. When he debuted, his full name was... Kane the Undertaker. Yep. Like, they literally just called him that, like, one time, and then they're like, no, we just shortened it to you. They were like that, and they even had a special report. Like, if you remember back in the day, Mean Gene would give us a special report after the first match in Superstars and Wrestling Challenge. And uh, after he debuted in this match, they showed the graphic, and it said right there, Kane the Undertaker. (laughs) Yeah, and, uh, of course, Kane being... The biblical Cain, I guess, is what they were referencing there, uh, because they spelled it C-A-I-N. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, eventually people just forgot about this name, and they just called him The Undertaker, and eventually that's what stuck. Yeah, and Cain would end up being a better name for a different character anyway. Yeah, more on that later. Spoilers. (laughs) He made his official debut at Survivor Series 1990, thankfully not hatching out of an egg. (laughs) Man. Imagine that. Just a historic show all around. Oh, uh, he he was the a long build mystery partner of the Million Dollar Man's Million Dollar Team, who was taking on on uh, Dusty Rhodes's team. And I gotta tell you, I thought it was gonna be like somebody returning. 
I wasn't expecting anyone new. Did you? Were you watching wrestling at this time, Joe? Uh, I was three years old, Malcolm. Oh boy. Well, <laughs> let me. Well, they built this up for like weeks and weeks, weeks that it was going to be a mystery partner. So I, you know, I kind of thought they were going to repackage somebody. I didn't think. I did not suspect anyone completely new. And this walks out. Yeah, basically, a uh, million dollar man came out like. I, basically, with this idea of like, I just found the biggest dude I could find, and here he is to kick your ass. Indeed, and out he comes as the Undertaker, wearing a black trench coat, gray striped tie, a gray ringed and black Stetson hat, with gray gloves and boot spats. <laughs> the character is, to put it quite simply, the character of the Undertaker, especially at this time, was a zombie. He no-sold everything, but in a way that made you think he was impervious to pain. It wasn't like Hawk, where you would get slammed and you'd just spring back up. He would, like, you would punch him. He, his face would turn to sell the impact of the punch. But then he would just slowly turn back at you with this dead look in his eyes and continue <laughs> marching at you. Like, he, he never ran. It was always like this death, uh, death march towards you at all times. <laughs> Uh, and I got to tell you, this is easily my least favorite era of Undertaker. Really? Yeah. Like the whole no selling thing is like, eh. Like it's like it's like it, he's his statue. Stature, of course, is impressive compared to the smaller wrestlers of that day. But it's like you can only t- watch someone no sell an entire match for so for so long before it gets very. Boring. Oh God, Joe! Wait till we get to the Road Warriors then. Man, if you don't <laughs> like selling, goddamn. Uh, I appreciate it in the way that, like, a, I can understand where you're coming from with that. Definitely you need to sell. Uh, but I would uh, I would counter that with, A, it really made the character all the more scary. Like, if I could, if you take anything away from this uh, Undertaker character, like, they would do these shots of the audience of little kids watching him walk to the ring, and and they were just scared to death. It is so <laughs> wonderful. Was, like, because... It's not just the look. Like, once again, going back to what I was saying, that Undertaker was in character. Like, this is really a character that takes a lot of concentration because you can't smile, you can't laugh, you can't show any emotion. Like, I couldn't do this character because at some point I would see something and it would I would either smile or I would laugh. Uh, like, he was in character twenty four seven. Like, nothing affected him, him at all. It, it was. It was just surreal, and especially when we get to Paul Bearer, I'll explain more about that. As he, when he debuted, his manager was actually Brother Love. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Which made no sense. No, it did not. <laughs> uh, oh, and my favorite part, I, it wasn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it was eyeliner, but it must have been some form of makeup, but he had like all this dark under his eyes that made, like, made it look like he had never slept ever, which... <laughs> yeah. To me, just added to it. Uh, he had quite a successful debut. He killed Coco Beware with his Tombstone Pile Driver, which uh, the announcers sort of botched because they already knew the move, even though this was his debut. How would you know that? <laughs> right. Well, well, the reason for that is because they had taped this show and uh, several months of they taped several months of superstars before this pay per view where Undertaker had already been wrestling and they knew the move so great job. <laughs> um, he eliminated Coco Beware and Dusty Rhodes. He would then get counted out as Dusty Rhodes went after Brother Love and 
Undertaker went out to stop him and got counted out. Uh, like I said, the cane part of his name became neglected, and soon people stopped calling him that and just called him the Undertaker. Uh, very soon, he would switch character, his switch managers from Brother Love to Paul Bearer, played by Percy Pring- Pringle. A very iconic role as uh, Paul Bearer was just this shrill, ghastly looking manager. <laughs> he would speak in a voice like this. And it was. Uh, it was quite the iconic role for him, and the, the two now those two those made sense. Yes, <laughs> Percy handled all the talking, and to bring some supernatural into it, Percy introduced the urn, which would become the favorite object of every young kid at that point. As <laughs> Percy would use the urn to seemingly control the Undertaker. Whenever he was in pain, he would clutch the urn, but then he he would raise the urn slap the mat, and Taker would sit up. Sitting up was another important part of The Undertaker. He didn't, like, crawl back up. He would just, like, get hit, lay down for a bit, then just sit up and look at his opponent. It just looked like a zombie. It was great. <laughs> what do you suppose was in the urn? It, it varies. Like, <laughs> I know at, like, rest, around WrestleMania 29, uh, Paul Bearer was in the urn, but... Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, true story, but anyway, um, then we get to Royal. When we get to Royal Rumble, we actually do get to see what's in the urn. Um, but you would hear the announcers theorize that it was like a dead, like Undertaker's parents, which who would uh, show up in a uh, storyline later, or somebody dear to the Undertaker. That you know, I, I've even heard stories where Undertaker sold his soul after a loved one died. <laughs> Aid, but oh man, <laughs> uh, this was a jobber period in wrestling. So Undertaker, to look even cooler, would defeat foes and then zip him up in a body bag and carry him off after the match, <laughs> just like he was like they had died or something. Uh, so, so he would uh, just go on looking awesome until. Well, he made his uh, next pay-per-view, WrestleMania 7, defeating Superfly very quickly. <laughs> this uh, I mentioned this for no particular reason. Just thought I should mention that this is Taker's first WrestleMania, and he's 1-0 right now. Just <laughs> And, uh, like, these, these early WrestleMania matches are all kind of, kind of the same way, right? They're all just kind of mostly unspectacular matches against, like, middle-level talent or mid-card talent. Yeah, like what spoilers, but what what this would eventually become you you got to re- I I really doubt they had any they you could tell they had no idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised that it was Orton who spelled it out for him one day and then everyone was like, "Oh wait, yeah, he had- <laughs> <laughs> Like they probably got to like wrestle like to his 10th uh win before they realized like, "Hey, we probably have something here." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But anyway, we get to Undertaker's first feud. At the time, Bear was doing a talk show called The Funeral Parlor. One week on Superstars, Bear had top fan favorite, The Ultimate Warrior, on the show. Bear started antagonizing The Warrior. And uh, the set, by the way, very ghastly. There was caskets all over the place. It, uh, you know, missed around. There was dark... Dark uh, and uh, dark green writing, lighting all over the place. Look, no cool. rainbows or anything, Malcolm. No rainbows. Uh, and, the, and the funeral parlor. Oh. No unicorns either, Joe. And 
Warrior was uh, spouting out some nonsense, as only he can do, when all of a sudden, a casket that was so far behind him opened up very slowly, and there was the Undertaker, who got up behind uh, the Warrior, jumped him from behind, choking him, which was a big move of Undertaker's repertoire. He would just strangle you. And stuffed him in a casket, and then sealing it with a crank. And you know, Joe, those caskets are airtight. Oh, yeah. So what we got was something that uh, gave my young, fragile mind lots of nightmares for a long time. (laughs) As you then saw, like, 10 backstage hands, like, drilling holes into the casket, trying to get air into it, you know, trying to pry this thing open. And you could hear the warrior inside, like, screaming and, like, and clawing, and then suddenly goes silent. (laughs) <laughs> and then they open it and undertake and warrior is just lying there motionless and you, you're like oh my god he's dead <laughs> <laughs> undertaker murdered the ultimate warrior killed him dead by the way this would not be the last time that ultimate excuse me the undertaker but almost murdered somebody on net on live tv well i'll be pointing out those two <laughs> so this set up uh various house shows main events as They would generally do, uh, just to get an idea at what's uh, selling more money, they would do two different house show runs with two different main events. So they had Warrior versus Undertaker on one and Hogan versus Slaughter on the other ones. And Warrior and Taker actually outdrew Hogan and Slaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one of the many reasons that SummerSlam that year... Here that uh, Hogan grabbed uh, the Warrior for his match, so Undertaker was left to, to do with nothing. Mm. Uh, sad fact. But <laughs> this became the angle that everyone was talking about, whether Hogan liked it or not. As during this time, I mean, Jake Roberts appeared on the funeral parlor and offered to made an offer to the Warrior to teach him all about the dark side so that he would be able to fight the Undertaker. And thus... Let's uh, get his revenge. And uh, if you've ever seen these, I, I know that all three of these segments are on the Jake the Snake Pick Your Poison uh, DVD set, uh, but they're amazing. As uh, Jake just puts him like through, put the warrior through heck in order to teach him that, like <laughs> including burying him up to his neck, putting a skull in front of his face and telling him to talk to it for the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> to the climax... In which uh, under which Jake said, "All right, I got the secret to the Undertaker. It's in that room. <laughs> it's in the room with that little stand there. Go get it." Warrior goes in it and somehow did not see the twenty thousand snakes that were all over the place. <laughs> so he goes. He uh, stumbles across, fighting off all these snakes. Gets to the box, opens it, and out pops out a cobra and bites him in the face. Is and by cobra, I mean one of those rubber snakes that you can get for a dollar. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. It wasn't a real-life cobra, Mike, Malcolm? It, it wasn't a real-life anything, Joe. <laughs> the, the string that was attached to the snake had more life in it, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, <laughs> I'm just fighting this idea that that they put the, the ultimate warrior in all this real-life peril. <laughs> like, first we're going to stuff you in an airtight box, and then we're going to bite you in the face with the cobra. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> oh. 
As uh, Undertaker went unconscious, he looked up and would see Jake with the Undertaker and Bear looking down on him. And it was a really awesome image. And Jake's just laughing, and he's like, I, I don't get it. You trusted a snake. Never <laughs> trust a snake. And thus beginning uh, a feud there, too. And uh, that was off and running. Those two were the hottest heels ever, even going on to feud with Macho Man by jumping him and Elizabeth during uh, after their wedding. Oh, man. Um, he went on to have uh, multiple feuds, uh, including Warrior, Macho Man, and even later Sergeant Slaughter. And then eventually Undertaker was granted a WWF title match against Hulk Hogan at Survivor Series 91. And this matches. Do you know why this match is historic, Joe? Uh, do tell. Well, not just for the ending, but this is actually the very first singles matchup in Survivor Series history. As <laughs> up and up until that point, it was all elimination matches. Oh, you're right. Yep. And uh, after, so they have their matchup, and uh, okay, the one little nitpick I have with this match: Taker gives him the tombstone, and Hogan just. Hawk no-sells it and just jumps right up. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, stop, Hogan. <laughs> anyway, after some interference from Ric Flair, which he throws in a chair so Taker can tombstone Hogan onto the chair, one, two, three, Taker wins the title. It's his, right. his first run as, cha as champion, Joe. A year after his debut. Exactly. And it was this great moment. People started thinking, wow, things are really going to be different here. <laughs> he drops it back to Hogan the next week at Tuesday in Texas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, also, uh, it's not really important now, but at the time, Taker was the youngest WWE champion in history. He would have that until Yokozuna would win the title at WrestleMania 9. Hmm. Wait, so what's his age at this time? Ooh, uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> I didn't set up that much, man. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, he was... Let me see here. He was born in 1965. It is now 91, so I'll let you do the math. <laughs> All right, 25, 26 then? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty young, actually. Dang. All right. So at this time, Taker had been a face. But then, in February of 92, Jake the Snake had just lost to the Macho Man on Saturday night's main event. He crawled to the back where he went behind the curtain, saying that this night isn't over, it's just the beginning. He would grab a chair, and, and actually one of the really uh, suspenseful moments, he says, I'm going to hit whoever comes out first or is with this. And it, it kept cutting back to Jake, to Macho Man and Liz coming back, J back to Jake, back to Liz, and then... At first, Macho Man's in front, but then suddenly Liz starts to get ahead, and you're like, oh, no. And then finally, Liz goes through the curtain first. Jake goes to swing, but he can't move the chair. He looks behind him, and there's Undertaker holding the chair. This gives uh, Macho Man enough time to grab a chair and strike Jake in the back as hard as he can. Jake would confront uh, Taker on the funeral parlor and ask Taker, whose side are you on? To which Undertaker responded simply with, not yours. <laughs> Jake would then an attack Undertaker and then grab the lid of a coffin that Undertaker was was next to and slam it down 
sealing Undertaker's hand in this airtight casket. And he would then grab uh, Paul, Paul Bearer, DDT him on the floor, attack Undertaker multiple times, in which Undertaker uh, you know, would just simply stand up again and start walking, dragging the casket that was now like sealed on his hand, going after Jay. It was actually really, really cool. They would have a matchup at WrestleMania 8, which was sadly very short, despite... Now, this was the match I was actually looking forward to the most on this card. WrestleMania and, 8? Oh, yeah. I, I dug the story, and I thought this was going to be a nice uh, matchup. But sadly, it was it was really short. As uh, Jake forced Vince to release him before the match started. So Vince just said, okay, just make it quick. <laughs> So, Taker's thus far, despite having the title, has had a, a, a bit of a string of bad luck. Just as uh, War, the thing with Warrior got started, after SummerSlam, Warrior was gone from the WWE. And then he had this thing with Roberts, which could have also potentially been really, really good, but Roberts is gone too. It was at this point that Undertaker would basically do these really weird feuds, but people ate it up, to be fair. Uh, as his second big feud, Joe... Can you remember who it is? Oh, God, it's not Giant Gonzalez, is it? Nope, it's Harvey Whippleman. <laughs> okay. Harvey would, net, would at this point uh, have an issue with uh, with the dead man. First, seeking Kamala on him. Oh, we wrestled man. in a coffin match at Survivor Series 92. And uh, which apparently scared Kamala half to death that he actually <laughs> left. Um, seeking revenge for Kamala, Harvey would then bring in uh, your boy, Giant Gonzalez, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> who he would wrestle at WrestleMania 9. Oh, God. <laughs> 3-0. Now, Taker would win by DQ. Now, this would go down as actually one of the, the biggest threat, at least backstage-wise, to Undertaker's, under, Undertaker's streak, as... As, uh, there was a lot of t- Vince wanted him to win initially, but thankfully uh, decided to change as he wanted him to go over strong at first. But finally, relented and said, "All right, he can just get DQ'd, and that that shouldn't hurt him too much." Imagine if it had ended here, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! But anyway, a uh, giant Gonzalez would get DQ'd for or, and I'm not making this up grabbing a rag, pouring chloroform on it, and, you know, suffocating the Undertaker. Oh, God. Because, you know, when you're, like, 20 times bigger than this one guy, it makes sense that you'd have to use stuff like this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. This can't say enough about how terrible WrestleMania 9 was. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, God. There just isn't enough time in a day. We could do a show just on WrestleMania (laughs) 9, man. Jeez. (laughs) Uh, they would also wrestle again at SummerSlam 92 in a rest in peace match. Don't ask me what that is. No one knows. <laughs> I know. What does that mean? Someone has to die? <laughs> You'd think. It would... <laughs> like, we're, what, did they put, like, a knife and a gun in the middle of the ring? Like, all right, have at it. <laughs> I think in the end it was just a no DQ match. But going with what you were saying about someone dying, I think this was John Gonzalez's last match in WWE. Uh-huh. Uh during this time, Tucker take Tucker Taker <laughs> main evented the very first draw against Damian Demento. 
Sadly, not the guy who makes those awesome songs. <laughs> Taker would go on being Taker until Survivor Series 93, where Lex Luger and company he found a way to convince Taker to replace Tatanka on their team as they were taking on the foreign fanatics led by Yokozuna, the world champion. Uh, and uh, in a very interesting note, uh, the, the thing everyone wanted to see was Yokozuna, the unstoppable behemoth, go ahead head-to-head with the irresistible force that was the Undertaker. And when it was happened, Yoko wanted no part of Taker, fled the <laughs> ring as Undertaker stalked them, and they both got counted out, which set up a feud quite nicely, Joe. As a Taker would get his first shot in forever against Yokozuna for the title at Royal Rumble 94. One of the Yokozuna's managers, Jim Cornette, put a clause in the contract that Taker lost. He'd never get to face Yokozuna in a title <laughs> match ever again. Of course. Indeed. Now, we have to keep the Undertaker strong, Joe, even though we you know, don't want him losing. So... By the way, this match was a casket match. That was uh, Undertaker's clause in the contract. And sadly, this allows for no disqualifications, which means the following people, <laughs> just saying, could run down and interfere with the match. Adam Baum, both, head, both head shrinkers, Samu and Fatu, Crush, the great Kabuki, Jinchiro Tenryu, Bam Bam Bigelow, Jeff Jarrett and Diesel <laughs> all jumped the Undertaker during this matchup because I guess all heels hate this one guy for whatever reason. <laughs> they attacked the Undertaker who fought valiantly before somebody got the bright idea of attacking the dude controlling him with the power source. <laughs> so they attacked Bearer and opened the lid to the urn which let out this green mist all over the air. And as more and more mist escaped the urn, Taker grew weaker and weaker till finally he collapsed to the ground and did not move. It was very easy for Yokozuna and company to then roll up Taker and stuff him in that casket (laughs) and giving him his very first defeat in a casket match. As the uh, heels were exiting with with the casket, the casket got struck by lightning and the heels scattered. Taker's soul, I guess, appears <laughs> on the Titan Tron. <laughs> and then uh, spouts uh, on about how, you know, the everlasting spirit of the Undertaker will live forever and that he will not rest in peace. We then see his soul or a picture of his body go up from the Tron. And as it goes past the Tron, an actual long haired body floats into the sky which to this day is rumored to have been played by Marty Jannetty. Oh, man. As he flies to the top of the arena. (laughs) Marty Jannetty. Back to his home planet. (laughs) (laughs) Taker was off TV for seven months to heal from a back injury. Uh, This will not be the last time you hear me say Taker goes away to heal from injuries, by the way. Just so you I remember, I thought he was retired after this. Like... (laughs) After like three months, I was like, I guess he's gone. Wow. This guy here is dead. But I was mistaken. After WrestleMania 10, Ted DiBiase would return on TV, this time as a manager of uh, his corporation stable. He said that he has gotten The Undertaker back, as he was the guy who brought him in in the first place, don't forget. Mm -hmm. 
and he introduced his new Undertaker, which, at first, fooled quite a few people. With the exception of this Undertaker, was powered by money. <laughs> yeah, of course he was. It, it, it was actually pretty priceless. As Diviasi <laughs> would hold up, would like hold out money, and the Undertaker would be powerful. But then, when he started getting hurt, he would pull out more money from his pocket <laughs> and add it to the, to the just, roll. He just throw him a roll of quarters, and all of a sudden, <laughs> he just needed more continues, Joe. That's all. Ah, <laughs> uh, and. This, but my favorite part of this build was a funny segment where Paul Bearer returned to get the Undertaker, and you saw him. It was like, like you ever seen like the that Simpsons skit with Maggie, where they're like, "All right, Maggie, go to the one you love." <laughs> <laughs> like Bear, yeah. Bear was holding out the urn, and you'd see like this Taker look to him and suddenly walk towards him. And then DiBiase would pull out a wad of hundreds, <laughs> and Taker would go to him, and then. And uh, Paul Bear would hold up the urn even higher, and then Taker would turn around, but then DiBiase would add more money. He was so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, he ended up going towards DiBiase, and that's when uh, that's when uh, Bear was like, "That's not the Undertaker." <laughs> <laughs> this would lead to uh, lots of vignettes preparing for the return of the real Undertaker. Hearing him do stuff that he would never do, including going to Dunkin' Donuts to buy coffin-shaped donuts. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. You saw this, yeah. <laughs> Why would you... I hated these segments because they destroyed the Undertaker for me. It was like, so I was walking down the boardwalk and I saw Undertaker walking his dog. Oh my god, shut up! <laughs> oh god. Uh... So this would lead to the main event for SummerSlam 94, Taker versus Taker. And Taker did, in fact, come back. Uh, he replaced the gray in his outfit with purple, which I thought worked really nicely with his outfit, mm -hmm. and uh, changed up uh, his song a little bit it, to be more, uh, to sound a little bit better, too. I, I thought everything worked. And it was a fun little match. <laughs> this is the kind of match you could only do with the Undertaker. Yeah. And uh, after giving the Under Faker three tombstones, <laughs> the real Undertaker won, and that was the last we ever saw of uh, the fake Undertaker, which, by the way, played by wrestler Primetime Brian Lee. Yeah, I was about to ask. Who the hell was the Under Faker anyway? <laughs> uh, prime, yeah, Primetime Brian Lee, as he was known in ECW. Uh, he would also be one of the members of uh, the Disciples of the Apocalypse as well. Uh, not Crush, not Skull or Eight Ball, that one, the other one. <laughs> you know, we couldn't get the the Undertaker versus Thing match at WrestleMania this year that people wanted, but maybe we can get a fake Sting versus fake Undertaker match. Oh my god, that would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, that is brilliant, Jim. <laughs> Could have Taker and Taker versus Sting and Sting. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, just the fake ones for the pre-show. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. I, I would pay a million dollars to see that. <laughs> so Taker was back in his first order of business. Get that jerk Yokozuna. So take Yokozuna, who had lost the belt at this point, which means that that whole clause about never having to face Taker was void as it would not be a title match. So at Survivor Series 94, they faced off again in another coffin match. 
featuring a very special double wide, double deep casket. <laughs> I know this because Vince would not stop saying this for the entire build for this event. Take her over. Taker then began to feud with Ted DiBiase's corporation stable, as Ted was still pissed about losing his Undertaker. (laughs) He kept feuding with different members of the corporation, and the story would be one of them would steal the, I think, IRS it started off with at Royal Rumble 95. He stole the urn as part of the setup. Taker went over, but as he was defeating him, Bundy came and took the urn. Then at WrestleMania 11... King, he defeated King Kong Bundy. But during this match, Kama would run down to ringside. <laughs> Kama, the supreme fighting machine, of course, would run down to the ringside, steal the urn, and have it melted down into a gold chain, Joe. Because that's, <laughs> that's what the kids are wearing. Sweet. <laughs> this culminated in a casket match at SummerSlam 95, where Taker finally got the urn back and had to remelt it in the shape of an urn. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Now, a little after this, uh, there was quite a very infamous six-man tag that uh, took place. As uh, It was a match where it was Shawn Michaels, Diesel, and Undertaker, the faces, taking on Mabel, Yokozuna, and the British Bulldog. And I said infamous because during the course of this matchup, and mainly thanks to uh, one injury giver by the name of Mabel, (laughs) all three main event faces got injured. (laughs) Real nice. (laughs) Oh, yes. Such a career. Such a tragic loss. But anyway, Mabel actually crushed Undertaker's (laughs) orbital bone near his (laughs) eye. Uh, so he was out for a while until coming back at SummerSlam 95. This is not the last time you'll hear me say Undertaker then came back once again. Uh, w- this time wearing an amazing Phantom the Opera style mask that just made him look even more demonic. I actually really liked it. Uh, in reality, it was there to protect his face until the <laughs> healing process lo- was complete, as well as making him look really badass. Taker would finally receive another shot at the WDF title against Bret Hart at Royal Rumble 96. However, Diesel, who had just turned heel, was pissed that someone else was getting a shot at Bret before he did. So he interfered in the match to prevent any changes from taking place. Also during this match, Taker's mask came off, and that was pretty much it after this. So Undertaker was back to being maskless. Add in at this point, and by the way, Joe, I have a new nickname for Undertaker after doing this report. Okay. You know how Sean is Mr. WrestleMania? Of course, everybody knows that. As of this time, I'm a new nickname for Undertaker with the, his 20 that he has now is Mr. In Your House. <laughs> <laughs> he has so many In Your House matches, Joe. <laughs> And sadly, I remember his matches, but I don't remember anybody. I rarely remember anybody else's matches. So, yeah, he is Mr. In Your House, for, in my opinion, after this. As we cut to In Your House, Rage in a Cage, as Diesel took on Bret Hart in a steel cage match for the belt. And to return the favor, Taker appeared and dragged Diesel to the floor through the ring. Which, I know what you're going to say, Joe, according to the rules, should have made Diesel the new champion as his feet touched the floor first. Yeah. (laughs) It's simple logic. (laughs) (laughs) However, 
Vince said, shh, in response, and uh, <laughs> Brett retained the belt. He said, quiet, you. <laughs> there is no rule box in wrestling. <laughs> this set up a, gr- a grudge match wonderfully at WrestleMania, tell, re- WrestleMania 12. As this was Taker's first real test at Mania, at least in my opinion, as Diesel was a former world champion. Yep. And I thought this this was really cool. This was the first time these two really had ha- had a match. And I, I didn't know who was going to win. I actually went, one of the reasons I watched Mania 12 was to see who would win this match. And after some nice back and forth in which you saw Taker kick out of the jackknife powerbomb, which was Diesel's finish, Taker beats Diesel, amazingly being able to tombstone him and uh, continue that non-existent streak that he's got going on now. <laughs> Taker's next big feud was with a plucky young newcomer named Mick Foley, who was going on by the name of Mankind. And I thought these two had a very interesting rivalry, as it kind of reminded me of the whole Batman and uh, Joker dynamic. Hmm. As uh, Mankind was a creature of pure chaos, while Taker was, you know, when you break it down, Taker was pretty civil. Or like... (laughs) And it would go down as one of the Taker's best rivalries, as, uh, like I said, there was real chemistry there. Mankind would attack Taker relentlessly and cost him many matches, including a shot against Goldust for the Intercontinental title at In Your House Beware of Dog. The two <laughs> Is that began... really what that was called? Yep. Jesus. Oh, trust me. Well, these In Your House names. <laughs> <laughs> We're just scratching the surface. The two would br- began to brawl and fight all over the arenas, too. Their first match was at King of the Ring 96, and in a stunner, Mankind got the victory after Paul Bear accidentally hit The Undertaker with the urn. <laughs> the feud continued at SummerSlam 96 in the much-talked-about Boiler Room Brawl. Mm. Well, as they started out in the Boiler Room of the arena, where the Mankind character would hang out, and then they fought, fought all throughout the arena, eventually ending up in the ring. And in the shocker of shockers, Mankind won as Paul Bearer turned and struck down the Undertaker, allowing Mankind the victory. Taker was, Paul Bearer was now aligned with Mankind. <laughs> and the rivalry went to the next level at In Your House, Buried Alive. <laughs> as they faced off in the very first... Buried Alive match, which the point of the match is you throw your opponent in the hole and you bury him in dirt. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding, folks. That's the match. (laughs) Taker went over, but once again, with the help of so many heels, Mankind attacks Taker and buries him alive. Lightning strikes, eggs the grave, and you see Undertaker's hand pop out in a nice little vigil. But Taker was gone until Survivor Series 96 now. And he came back, taking on Mankind, where the stip was that Paul Bearer was up in a cage. And if Taker won, he got his he got to have five minutes with Bearer. Taker would win. However, the execution would then interfere, allowing Bearer to escape before any harm could, could come to him. It was with this match, by the way, it was with this return that the Undertaker character became more human and less cartoonish meaning he would actually talk more. He was still, you know, in the character of the dead man. And, but, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't a zombie anymore, you know? 
those uh, little tweaks here and there, and thus, as it's said over and over, your character needs to evolve if you want to stick around in wrestling, and Taker did just that. He also started to call himself the Lord of Darkness, which would go down as nickname number three. <laughs> then at In Your House, It's Time, he defeated and sent the Executioner packing in an Armageddon Rules match. What does that mean? Uh, I think it's the same thing as a Rest in Peace match. <laughs> <laughs> like you're just adding words to the end of these matches. A lot of these matches are just adding words. <laughs> it's like this is just called an ODQ match. Uh, yeah, just they, they really should. <laughs> so to make up for the executioner who is now gone from the WWE, <laughs> Taker uh, Bearer found some new muscle in the form of Vader. They met at Royal Rumble '97, where Taker lost thanks to interference from Paul Bearer. They would meet again in the Royal Rumble itself, where they were in the Final Four, along with Austin and Bret Hart. They were eliminated by Steve Austin. However, the tra- the tragedy or the consp- the controversy there is Steve had already been eliminated, but the ref missed it and ran back into the ring before the ref realized that he was eliminated and then promptly threw out Brett, Taker, and, uh, <laughs> and Vader. Austin run- won the Rumble, but uh, Gorilla Monsoon was quick to call bullshit and created this match. <laughs> As Vader, Austin, Brett, and Taker would take on each other at In Your House Final Four, where the rules were, it was a, it was essentially a fatal four-way, but it was elimination style, and you could eliminate somebody by throwing them over the top rope. <laughs> now, this, this Final Four pay-per-view was in March, I presume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this was just before WrestleMania. Yeah. See, this was, see, this was the, t- the moment in time, Shawn Michaels... Perhaps due to injury, due to not wanting to drop the belt to, to Brett at Mania, lost his smile. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. So he dropped the belt. So this became not for the number one contendership, but for the title. And Taker lasted till the very end with Bret Hart, but Bret was able to pull out the Duke at the very end. <laughs> we go to WrestleMania the 13th, as Taker would call it. Because Taker was the runner up, he became the number one contender for the title at WrestleMania 13. Brett, sadly, lost the belt to Psycho Sid the very ni- <laughs> next night on Raw, thanks to Steve the Jerk Austin. That ki- This would later build up to one of my favorite uh, main event matches at uh, on Raw, in which Brett was taken on Austin, and Sid and Taker was, uh, uh, was all set. However, Brett... The su- Brett enacted his rematch and took on uh, Sid in a steel cage match on Raw. And you see the announcer interview Steve Austin and ask him, "So which one do you want? Do you think is going to win, or which one are you rooting for, Austin?" And Austin looks at him and says, "Well, Brett, of course." To which confu- which confused the backstage guys. Like, wait, I thought you hated Brett. And he's like, "Oh yeah, I hit him to death." <laughs> but if he wins, then my match at Mania becomes a title match. So. Not only do I hope he wins, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure he wins. (laughs) So he actually, Austin would actually interfere for Brett attacking The Undertaker, trying to get him to win. And likewise, Taker would interfere for Sid, trying to help him win so he would keep his title. It was a very over-the-top match and helped build up both matches quite nicely. 
In a match which saw Sid poop his pants in the main event. Nice. T- <laughs> uh, never Glad forget. <laughs> Glad you highlighted that. <laughs> Taker won the belt for the first time in six years and became him the champion for a second time. His first opponent uh, with this new reign would be Mankind for the simple reason that Mankind beat him a few times in the past. <laughs> That's good <laughs> enough, I think. Yeah, they they tried to build it up like uh, Mankind had his number, but despite the fact that, <laughs> you know, if Taker never beat him, it would have been even better. But, you know, whatever. You take what you get. It was a good, <laughs> it was a good match. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes, at least uh, in wrestling today, they try to overthink a lot of the angles. So sometimes it's nice to just be like, yeah, you know what? These guys just haven't liked each other in the past, so they're going to wrestle again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there is still a rivalry there. So yeah, because I mean, all that stuff with Paul Bear uh, in mm-hmm. the past, you know, so it works. It works. So they would face off at In Your House, Revenge of the Taker, in which Undertaker got his revenge as, you know, spoiler, thanks WWE, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> also, Bear tried to get Undertaker to forgive him after this, but Taker told him to get bent. <laughs> 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 so there you go. But anyway... Now, here's an important historical note to bring up before we go on. In May 97, Paul Bearer began to threaten Taker by revealing his darkest secret if he didn't join his stable again. Bearer claimed Taker was an arsonist slash murderer for starting a fire at his parents' funeral home where Paul Bearer worked. Killing his parents and his younger brother. Taker denied these claims, saying the <laughs> fire was an accident caused by his brother, who was just playing with some matches. As it turned out, he was a pyromaniac. Bear was saying he was lying, and when Taker confronted him, he said he had proof by saying, Kane is alive! <laughs> and Kane was alive, and he wanted vengeance. Bear would also reveal that he had an affair with Taker's mom, because, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that Kane was his half brother as Bearer was his father. While all this was going on, Taker continued to defend the title. Until we get to SummerSlam '97, Heart and Soul, which was a great event. You know why, Joe? Why is that, Mel? Because I was there. What? I was there, yes. <laughs> I got to cross off two things off my bucket list, Joe. One. Well, it's three things. One, I went to a pay-per-view. Two, I got to see a title change hands. I saw multiple titles change hands, actually. <laughs> and I got to see my favorite wrestler win the title. So, oh. The setup for the main event here was it was Taker versus Bret Hart for the title with special guest ref Shawn Michaels. And the big controversy here was like, wait, Shawn hates Bret. <laughs> what? what? How, how is this fair? How is this fair? And Bret Hart, being a heel at the time, you know, of course whined about it. And the management at the time made the ruling that if Sean did not call this down the middle, then he would be fired. So the matchup takes place. It's a great match, by the way. Yeah. The, Bret, Bret and Taker, I don't think, get enough credit for how well they work together. Um, at one point, uh, Bret tries to hit Taker with a chair, which Sean takes it away. And, you know, Brett, of course, thinks it's just because he's being a dick. So Brett then looks at Sean and says, screw you, and spits right in Sean's face. To which Sean, enra- yeah, Sean, enraged, winds up 
and strikes <laughs> only for Brett to duck as Taker would take the blow in the head instead. Brett would then scramble and cover the Taker, and Sean had no choice but to count the fall, giving the title to his <laughs> rival. Brett is the greatest wrestler ever. Uh, he's so good. He is, he's so good. He's so good. Now, Taker wouldn't take this <laughs> as this created the Sean Taker feud for the very first time as surprisingly, and it's one of those things you didn't realize until it was happening. These two had never had a match till now. Yeah. I mean, at that point, they'd both been around a pretty much the same amount of time. You know, Shawn Michaels probably beat him to WWF by a couple of years, but a lot oh, yeah. of years to spend together without actually tangling. Uh, and which is rare. Like nowadays, that's impossible. Like <laughs> Bray Wyatt has pretty much faced everybody. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! But to say the hype was pretty high for this one was was an understatement. As two of the arguable, arguably the best workers in the business went to have a match, and I would say it lived up to expectation. They just beat the tar out of each other, and it ended in a double countout. Ooh. <laughs> That's at In Your House Ground Zero, by the way, if you ever want to look it up. They would later have a rematch at In Your House Bad Blood. Yeah, Mr. In Your House, I tell you. You remember why that was a big deal, Joe? That's the very first Hell in a Cell match. That's the very first Hell in a Cell match. As, in many ways, still the one to beat, as uh, it was very, very nicely done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, after a back-and-forth matchup, Sean went over when Taker, who seemingly had the match won, the lights go out. <laughs> and then this weird, horrifying music comes on. Red light comes on. It's Kane. A masked man. The masked <laughs> monster comes to the ring. Despite, be- I love the fact that Kane, even though he's the baby brother, brother is the stronger and larger of the two. <laughs> and that's got to be Kane. <laughs> that's imagine if it wasn't Kane. <laughs> I know it's like no, it's just some guy lost on the way to. <laughs> Wait, that was a fan? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> no, that's got to be Kane. Kane would rip the door off the hinges and then tombstone his brother in the middle of the ring, allowing Sean to get the get the pin and get out of dodge. Uh, Kane and Bearer would then challenge the Undertaker, but. Taker decline, refusing to fight his brother. Yep. He had one more encounter with Shawn Michaels at Royal Rumble 98. As I, I wrote, Taker and Shawn had one final match twice there for some reason. <laughs> it, it was a casket match for the WWE title that Shawn had secured the belt at this time. Yeah. Kane, leading up into this match, Kane seemingly sides with Undertaker. Here. But this was all turned out to be a ruse as he would betray his brother and stuff him in the casket. (laughs) Then afterwards, he would light the casket on fire to kill his brother. But after the fire, they opened the casket and Taker was gone. How did he do it, Malcolm? (laughs) Uh, Mind games. That's how he did it. (laughs) Uh, By the way, you know why this was an infamous match, Joe? Who tell? This is the match where Undertaker, or Undertaker, Shawn Michaels hurt his back. Ah, yes, that's right. When he clipped his, uh, very unfortunately clipped his back on the very corner of the of the casket when he got thrown out. Yeah, you see it, and it's just, ugh, gosh. Yeah, and the way, I mean, this isn't the, the Shawn Michaels focused episode, but I mean, the way he talks about it is like, at first, he 
barely felt it. Uh, I mean, not, there was that discomfort, but it wasn't until the next day where he, he was hit with blinding pain, basically. Mm. So, yeah, he would basically wrestle Mania, and then after that, we didn't have Shawn Michaels for the longest of time, mm-hmm. which will help out when we eventually cover him. But anyway, <laughs> Taker would be gone <laughs> from this point for two months until Taker returned to accept the challenge of Kane as he would as he stated he will cl- he will crawl through fire to end end him and they would face off at Res- at WrestleMania 14 in a very uh story driven focused matchup about story driven as a compliment folks that's what you want <laughs> in a wrestling match taker gets the win tombstoning his very own brother three <laughs> times they would have a rematch at in your house unforgiven You'll hear that name quite a few times, by the way, too. Kane and Undertaker faced off in the very first what? Uh, Inferno match, wasn't it? Yeah, there we go. And sadly, you could tell who was going to win, because at this point, Kane had had like one sleeve down. or No, I think he had like the whole body. But anyway, it was pretty much Undertaker who had his arm arms bear versus Kane, who's pretty much wearing a full body outfit. Gee, I wonder who's going to win, but uh, yeah, Kane gets, gets his arms set on fire and runs to the back as Taker goes over. Mankind would come back and would uh, challenge the, enter another feud with the uh, Undertaker after Mankind cost Taker a number one contenders matchup against Kane. These two would have the, have a match, uh, King of the Ring, 98. It's a Hell in a Cell match. There's nothing really to talk about. Take her over. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, obviously, there's something to talk about, but it, it, I feel like we should really go into it more in the McFoley uh, episode. <laughs> but needless to say, this is probably the most famous of uh, matches. And the funny part is, Taker, not really so much for ta- what Taker does. <laughs> It's more for mankind, but it leans to say this was like the most barbaric matchup in the history of wrestling, as in many ways it's the most famous match wrestling match ever. Yeah, I mean because it's it's really truly the height of how barbaric uh WWF was allowed to get. Uh and yeah, it's just the whole the whole thing was just pure brutality. Yeah, do you want to talk about it now or do you want to save the major talk for the McFoley episode? Uh I mean I, th- I don't think you can really talk about it without... I mean, I don't think... I think they they both warrant talking about it. So okay. I mean, we may as well tackle it now. All right. So Mick Foley would would say later in, in both bios and uh, interviews that, you know, he was talking with Terry Funk, trying to figure out some way they could top the very first one. Keep, keep in mind, this is only the second Hell in a Cell match <laughs> yeah. in history. And uh, Terry Funk made a joke... <laughs> You could just have Taker throw you off the roof. <laughs> okay. Wait, Sadly, what? Mick Foley thought this was a great idea. <laughs> so right at the start, they climb to the very top of the cage. So what normal, what the Sean and Taker like built up to in their match, they just start off right there. And in one of the most shocking things I've ever seen, Taker just grabs Mick and chucks him off into the <laughs> announce table down there. Like, so much rubbish. Oh, God. And 
it it doesn't the TV doesn't do justice as to how big of a drop that is. That's like twenty one feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jr. makes like probably like the calls of his career. As yeah, or the most iconic calls. Yeah, because you know, like, hey, good God Almighty, he's broken in half. <laughs> he's he's not just saying that. He really thinks that he's hurt and is concerned. Yeah. And Mick Foley is slow getting up, but he does get up and then shrugs off the AMTs. And it's like my favorite part of the match. Like he's carted halfway down the ramp before he gets back up. Yeah. And Taker climbs off the roof and is back down on the ground right where the announce tables are. And he's just looking at Mick Foley get carted away. For all he knows, this is the end of the match. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, well, that didn't go as well as we thought. Yeah. And then Foley gets off and he starts like, accelerating towards the side and their eyes lock and Foley grabs a piece of the fence Taker grabs a piece of the fence and then they start crawl climbing back up and Mick Foley is extremely quick to get to the top and I want to point out something he has a dislocated shoulder at this point <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know they start fighting and they had the spot plan for like doing some bumps on the top of the roof the following was not meant to happen <laughs> As he takes a choke slam, and the roof gives way, and he falls another tw- like fifteen feet into the ring, and there's no table to break the break the fall. And if you can watch this drop in slow motion, mm-hmm. just seeing his body contort from the impact, especially his legs, it's sick. Not just that, but uh, you know, at that point he he. He'd also brought a, a chair up to the top of the cage as well, and he was holding it as he got choke slammed. And he, like, <laughs> one of the things that Mick points out that people don't really notice until he does point it out is that, you know, the, the chair fell pretty much right after him and landed square on his face. Oh. And it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, at this point, it's like, absolutely, the match should be over. Uh, but of course, it's not. Yep, J- JR says it once again pretty iconically. Will somebody stop the damn match? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and Tim White was the referee as well, and he and he's he talks about it as well. He's like, we're pretty much in uncharted waters here. We're like, we have no idea what exactly kind of what kind of destruction we could cause in this thing because it was only the second Hell in a Cell ever. Yeah, and at this point, Terry Funk had made his way to the ring. And I guess to buy time for uh, to man, or Mick Foley to recover, mm-hmm. he starts brawling very awkwardly with The Undertaker. And after a small back and forth, he's tombstoned by Taker and rolled out of the ring. <laughs> At this point, Mick Foley's up again and he's fighting. And uh, Mick Foley, for whatever reason, keeps going, grabbing a <laughs> bag of thumbtacks in which he's choke slammed onto it. Oh, man. Uh, and uh, one of the iconic in- images of this match, another one, there's a spot where the camera like swings around the ring post as uh, Foley's in the corner, and it looks like he's doing this demented smile, <laughs> where really he's trying to push his tooth through his lip, which has a hole in it for him to do this. <laughs> uh, and then finally and mercifully, Taker grabs him, tombstones him, and that's the match. Like... From a technical standpoint, this mat, you know, it's not like a classic. Like <laughs> no, it's like shot. it's literally just four moves. Uh, oh god! But yeah, but three of them are devastating. Yeah, and you know, 
I, you know, in reviews, this fa- this looks on uh, Mick Foley favorably. That I, this would take this took years off his career. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't get thrown off a twenty foot cage, slammed through a twenty foot cage, and then choke slam onto a pile of pointy little things uh, without taking some real hurt. And uh, in his book, um, in his very first book, The Hardcore Diaries, uh, Mick Foley is. Uh, he, he talks about how he's brought to the back and on a stretcher. By the way, if you look really hard, Vince was out there for the whole match too. Mm. Like after the very first one, he thought because he thought Foley was hurt, and uh, he doesn't remember the match at all. But he remembers Vince telling him, and when he was in the backstage, it's like, "Hey, Mick, I want to thank you very much for the sacrifice that you made for World Wrestling Entertainment today in that ring. It'll never <laughs> be forgotten. But at the same time, I need you to promise that you're never going to do a sacrifice like that ever again." <laughs> oh God! But you know, people—it's it, such a—you know—Taker sh- is almost overshadowed in this matchup. Like all people talk, remember is Foley do- going through and Foley doing this. But you know, Taker was a part of pro- arguably the most famous matchup in wrestling history. So, yeah. But but my God, wow. And, and the funny thing is, uh, Matt Foley was also saying that at this point in his career, he was considering retiring as uh-huh. he thought, like, I'd reached like the highest I could go. I guess no one cares. <laughs> he reached the highest he could go and was immediately flung off from as high as he can go. <laughs> now. Despite this taking off years, this would propel McFoley into stardom. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I digress. I digress. So Taker went over. <laughs> and then he would find himself teaming up with Stone Cold Steve Austin as they took on Kane and Mankind for the belts. For the tag belts, as Mankind and Kane later won them. They won, but they would lose the belts right back at him two weeks later. Taker would then become the number one contender for the WWE title at SummerSlam 98. Weeks before the event, however, K- Taker and Kane formed an alliance, leading speculation as to whether Kane was going to interfere in the match or not. These were kind of alleviated on the pay-per-view itself. as ta- In a backstage promo, Taker requests that his brother not interfere at the match no matter what. And uh, he followed through as the, they had a matchup as a, a very clean match with Austin, which Austin got the victory and the clean pin, to which they shook hands afterwards even, <laughs> too. Now, I mention all this because this is what both Taker and what both Taker and Austin wanted. They wanted a match out of respect, which, you know, made for a good match, but it kind of confused the audience because up until this point, Taker had been pretty heelish, so they didn't <laughs> quite get what was going on here. But don't worry, because after that, the, the, the full heel turn came as it was revealed that Taker and Kane were in cahoots with Vince McMahon, who was in the <laughs> midst of his feud with Austin. Vince then booked a triple threat with Kane and Taker for Austin's title belt at In Your House Breakdown. And the rule was Kane and Taker couldn't pin each other, but they could pin Austin just <laughs> I guess they did this. Vince did this as a way so that they wouldn't fight as much, but you know they they they're still going to attack each other. Like when one makes a pin on Austin. <laughs> anyway, this the end came after a double choke slam on Austin. They pinned him at the same time, and in thus pinning Austin, but there was still no champ. There was no champ to be decided. So Vince vacated the belt. 
as he was just happy that Austin no longer had it. This led to a match between Taker and Kane at Judgment Day, with Austin as a special guest ref. <laughs> Step here was if Austin didn't do his job, he'd be fired. This also, at the event, Paul Bearer returned and resided with Taker, forsaking his son in the process. After helping Taker lay out Kane, in, uh, Taker went for the pin and Austin wouldn't make the count. So then, stunners for everybody. He, <laughs> he counts out everyone, and he proclaims himself as the winner. Well, guess what, folks? He didn't do his job. <laughs> Vince Vince appeared and for and said those magical words for the very first time. You're fired. <laughs> this would mark him. This would mark the time that Taker was now fully a heel for forsaking his brother which was the first time in six years Taker had made the turn. Bearer and Taker said they would unleash a ministry of darkness on the WWF. Hmm. (laughs) Admits that he, in fact, he also at this point admitted to the fact that he started the fire that killed his folks, not Kane, and that it was on purpose. Uh, he just admitted to murder. (laughs) I know. Like, uh, maybe get somebody out here, some, uh, some authorities, uh, to, (laughs) <laughs> to to uh, do away with the Somersaddle Maniac? No? No? Okay. Because that's what this t- character is. Wait, 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 wait until we get into it. Taker would try to get the title back at Survivor Series 98 in that big Deadly Games tournament, but was eliminated by The Rock after Kane came out to attack Taker and hit The Rock on his way to trying to grab him. So he was kicked out by disqualification. After this, Taker decided to feud with Austin again, citing how Austin cost them the title at Judgment Day when he was the special guest ref. Taker would cost Austin the title in a match against new champion The Rock by hitting him in the head with a shovel. See, he is the Undertaker. Graves. <laughs> Taker, at this point, became a more demonic in character, using symbols, speaking in tongues, most famously, Natra. And which would even become part of his entrance music and started dressing in these pretty epic Druid robe, Druid robes. It was pretty cool. This led to a buried alive match between the two at in your house, rock bottom (laughs) (laughs) precursor to SmackDown, I guess. Oh yeah. Austin over after some interference from Kane as taker once again, needed some time to heal from some wounds. (laughs) Taker would be back on TV in January 1999 to form a new stable, the Ministry of Darkness. Well, he did promise us, Joe. (laughs) And, Joe, can you name the members of the Ministry of Darkness? Oh, man. You know, I I mostly remember the corporate ministry, to be honest. Uh, I'll talk about them in a second. But uh, just to refresh your memory, there's Midian, famous for being naked. Oh, man. Viscera, sadly for for famous for hurting people, as I mentioned earlier, is Mabel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Brood, Gangrel, Edge, and Christian. Uh, yeah, see, that's the thing. I didn't remember if the Brood was a separate thing or not. They ended up kind of spinning off as their own separate thing, didn't they? Yep, yep. They were their own separate thing until finally they're like, well, dude, you, yeah, <laughs> you might as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you're better at being evil people than we are, so I guess we'll hook up. And if and of course, the acolytes, Bradshaw and Farouk. Yeah, they would rain havoc on the WBF. 
doing such things as kidnapping Stephanie McMahon <laughs> and forcing an unholy marriage. She has terrible luck with marriages, man. I tell or weddings. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Oh boy. Hey, this would this would start a feud with the corporation as that re- as at WrestleMania 15. Taker would defeat the boss man and then kill him by hanging him <laughs> above the room. Good God, man. Oh, the, okay, how did how do you explain that? I don't, I, I, you, you just, I don't know. <laughs> like, granted, you could see the bar that was pretend, preventing it from being a full-on hanging. But he killed him. <laughs> he hung the bed in the middle of the ring. And then he was on Raw the next night. <laughs> oh, yeah, no big deal. Which begs the question, is Ray Trailer really dead? Because <laughs> I've seen him fight death before. <laughs> oh, man. During this, Undertaker was saying that his ministry was getting orders from uh, a higher power. Oh, boy. And th- this would lead to eventually the corporation, led by <laughs> Shane McMahon, would merge with the ministry to m- form... The corporate ministry, which I loved because their theme music was absolutely amazing. <laughs> oh, God, I love that music. They combined the no chance with, like, this evil sermon that was playing in the background. And Undertaker actually had some really good rock music in his sermons. Oh, it was great. And thanks to this uh, thanks to this, al- annou- this alliance, Undertaker got a title shot. Against Austin at Over the Edge 99. Against Steve Austin. And thanks to Shane McMahon, who is the special guest ref, won the title again. Oh, and spoiler about the higher power. It was just Vince. <laughs> it was me all along, Austin. It was me all along, Austin. <laughs> Which, my favorite thing about that, the very same show you see Stephanie. me like, so wait, you knew about, you were in on the wedding too? And <laughs> yeah, like, I know. I was like, uh, well, yeah, about that. They're like, oh, come on! (laughs) Oh, man, oh, man. So, Taker, after winning the belt, would retain against The Rock at King of the Ring 99, but would drop it back to Austin the very next night on Raw. He would then also lose the rematch at Unforgiven in a first blood match. The Raw afterward, though, to to make him look strong, Taker came back and attacked X-Pac in a rage. Because that, that's what you do. You see X-Pac, you punch him in the face. <laughs> now, at this time, X-Pac had formed an alliance with Kane, which, for some reason, became really popular. Even I liked <laughs> them back then. When Kane arrived to save his partner, Big Show came and saved Taker. Show and Taker just nodded to each other and walked off as they became a new tag team. Joe, do you remember the name of Big Show and Taker's uh, tag team? Oh, God, I know it, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. The Unholy Alliance. Ah, there it is. And at SummerSlam 99, they beat Kane and Xbox for the tag belts. What was so unholy about them, exactly? Uh, Taker. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's like, what, like, Unholy Alliance implies that both parties are are in on the unholiness, but I mean, clearly one is much more unholy than the other. Hmm. Anyway, the team would lose the belt to the Rock and Saw connection, but then win him back on SmackDown on September 99. This is the period where Big Show says he learned the most, as uh, Taker put him under the, his learning tree, as he would say. <laughs> learning he, tree. he would come back afterwards, er, after a match, thinking he'd done a big, done a good job, but then he would look over, see 
he'd take her on a trunk sitting there, then look up at him, pull out that crooked finger and just tell him to come over here and then proceed to tell him everything he did wrong in that match. <laughs> oh man. But he credit, he thanks him a, a lot afterwards. But anyway, he was going to wrestle at Unforgiven that year, year, but suddenly quit, quit the WWE when in reality he had toured his groin and needed time off. Now, upcoming next show, this is going to surprise you, but when Taker returns, this is my personal favorite incarnation of The Undertaker. <laughs> Taker would return at WrestleMania 2000, but... Not for a match, just to beat up DX, because that's what you do. His injuries would keep him out of the ring, though, until May 2000. The, t- the dead man taker was gone, and in his place was, was, the, dead biker man taker. <laughs> yep, was the biker taker. <laughs> he wore a tank top, leather pants, and rode a motorcycle <laughs> to the ring. He came out to American Badass by Kid, Kid Rock. He, he didn't talk... <laughs> He didn't talk like the dead man. He wasn't talking like this. He basically talked like how I would imagine if I sat down with him and talked. <laughs> yeah, like he basically just became just like I guess the unnatural ex- the the actual human extension of the Undertaker character. I guess. Yeah, which uh, this was a period where now he could appear in DVD sets and like say, yeah, Edge was a heck of a worker and, talk, <laughs> and it wouldn't be that big of a, ne- a big of a deal. One of the many reasons I love this period. The other reason, the promos from this new <laughs> Undertaker. <laughs> oh my god! Like everything would be you know, like a motorcycle lingo type of thing. <laughs> like he was chewing like tobacco now. <laughs> so he I was, mean. So, I mean, this was a, a, a cool transformation, uh, a lot of people's favorite iteration of The Undertaker, but what spurred this change, do you know? Um, I think it was, like, one, to evolve the character yet again, as we're in 2000 now, and it had been over 10 years, maybe he felt that it needed a change. And uh, WWE at this time as well was going towards a more realistic Avenue as we're approaching the attitude era here, if we're not already in it. Oh yeah, we're and, well in it. Yeah, so you really can't. And I guess they thought that you can't really have a gimmick such as the Undertaker, but Taker was a legit is a legit biker in real life. Yeah. So like he call it like oh, I, I haven't even talked about the promos yet, but the way he talks, I'd have to imagine that's how he talks, and so which made. A sense of realism to the characters. So. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, the the I guess the rule of thumb in modern wrestling now is that you know the best characters are just extensions of the of the of the performer's real life personality, and I guess this was you know the Undertaker's swing at that because you know he's come back to the to the Dead Man persona, where you know that's obviously dialed back to kind of like exaggerate his original persona, but I guess. Uh- Oh, yeah, and the character was so different, it was very much a different character. Like, instead of, like, he would still say, like, rest in peace, but and, uh, he would come out and say, what you going to do when these two soup bones walking up your luck on your face? <laughs> like, like, let me tell you something, Angle. And, uh in your house, you're going for a ride. <laughs> uh, I would love it when he would talk about rides, because he would say ride, like, 23 times. It's like, you're not going to like this ride, because on this ride... It could be your last ride. Cause <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you started powerbombing fools. 
Yep, it, the tombstone was gone, though Bree brought back from here and there on special occasions. But his new finisher was was uh, the last ride, or as me as my me and my friends used to call it, the last wedgie. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's as notable for giving people wedgies as it is for being just a big ass power bomb. Oh yeah, so essentially he would he would get get you in a power bomb, hoist you up, and then grab you by your tights and lift you up even higher yeah. to give you greater impact. Yeah, full arm okay. extension, you know, extending upwards. <laughs> oh man, I, I love this Undertaker. This version, <laughs> I really do. The the only knock I have against this Undertaker is that man uh, that music that he ended up coming out to both. Whether it was the Kid Rock or Limp Bizkit variety was uh, basically the Shrek of entrance music. <laughs> <laughs> that it is not timeless. It is timeless. It's an <laughs> badass show. Oh, another thing I loved about it: Undertaker could crack a joke in this character. Oh yeah, yeah. Like he was taking on Chronic, who was married with Stevie Richards. <laughs> And, like, the interviewing, they're interviewing Taker in the back as him and Kane are taking on Chronic. Remember Chronic? <laughs> and he would say, like, Taker, they're, they seem, Stevie, Re- Stevie Richards is continuing this feud for you taking out the right to censor. And Taker starts get looking, like, all, like, what the heck are you doing? It's like, <laughs> of, course I t- here's, of course he's pissed off at me. And don't talk about the right to censor. No one wants to remember the right to censor. <laughs> Oh, man, I, I love this character so much. And it's a shame him that he left, but I, underst- I understand. <laughs> and, you know, the dead man is the classic character. But anyway, he would then begin feuding with the McMahon-Helmsley faction, which was essentially the McMahons and DX, which uh, made him face again. And by DX, folks, I don't mean Taker and Sean. Uh, Taker and Sean. <laughs> D- Hunter and Sean. I mean Hunter, X-Pac, and the New Age Outlaws. Uh, no China, though. For obvious reasons. <laughs> which made him face again. <laughs> At King of the Ring 2000, Taker, Rock, and Kane took on Triple H, Shane, and Vince in a kind of unfair six-man tag. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say it's a mismatch. <laughs> Probably should have lent one of those guys out to the other team. <laughs> I, I just I hope I hope all the promos leading up is just Triple H looking pissed. Like seriously, these are my teammates. <laughs> I mean, it's like you know Triple H is at the top of his game. You know, great, but then if you immediately <laughs> hit a cliff when you you got Vince and Shane. It's like okay, it's like Shane is better when you throw him off of things or through plate glass windows. Hmm. After this matchup, Kane and Taker reconciled for the whole Taker murdering his parents thing. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we'll just sweep that under the rug for now. Water under the bridge. Like, when you hear, like, a lot of the stuff, these three characters, and when I say three, I'm including Paul Bearer as well as Kane and Taker, You, it makes no sense that they are friends in any capacity. <laughs> you can tell me, oh, but it's family. Ma-. No, th- it, that's done. <laughs> like, there's murder of foul. <laughs> There's so so much attempted murder <laughs> in this can, story. You can't just reconcile that. Oh gosh! After this, they reconciled and took on Edge and Christian for the titles. Sadly, they failed, and Kane turned on him, choke slam, and <laughs> Taker twice on August 2000. The two would face each other at SummerSlam 2000, which ended in a no contest as Taker removed Kane's mask and Kane fled. <laughs> Taker would then challenge Kurt Angle 
at Survivor Series 2000, but Angle retained thanks to uh, a fun little st- use of Angle's brother, Eric, who looks exactly like Kurt Angle. <laughs> As uh, he ran into the ring, uh, Taker gave him the last ride and covered him, but the ref refused to count, not understanding why, when suddenly the real Kurt Angle <laughs> rushed from behind and rolled him up. <laughs> it was very cool. After this, a six-man Hell in a Cell match was made for Armageddon on December 2000, and Taker earned a spot along with The Rock, Steve Austin, Kane, Kurt Angle, and the one that makes no sense, Rikishi. Yeah, damn it, I love this match. Oh, God. I'm a bad man. (laughs) Uh, Taker, while he did not win... Did uh, accomplish something as he threw another innocent man off the top of the hell in the cell, this time being Rikishi into a back of a truck. <laughs> yeah, that was parked there for reasons unknown to anybody. Just kind of showed up. It's like, yeah, it's 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 a hay truck, I guess. Here you go. And sadly, Rikishi would not be remembered at all for doing this. So. <laughs> I know, like he just gets, I guess, semi choke slammed off the edge of the, the cage, and then that's pretty much where he stays the rest of the match. It wasn't even a semi choke slam. He's like, Taker grabbed him by the neck and sort of lightly pushed him off the edge. And yeah. <laughs> oh, man. In 2001, Kane and Undertaker, for some reason, reunited to form the Brothers of Destruction, <laughs> as they finally had a name now, and this would be their name whenever the two would, would uh, team up. The duo got a title match for the tag titles at No Way Out in February of 2001 against Edge and Christian, the champions, and against Edge and Christian and the champions, the Dudleys, in a table match. Despite dominating most of the match, they did not get the victory. Taker then then took on a feud with Triple H after Triple H made a comment that he should get the main event, get the match for the title at WrestleMania as he'd beaten everybody. To which Undertaker appeared behind him and stated, very simply, you've never beaten me. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) After some nice back and forth between these two, including a really, like, my favorite, Triple H steals Undertaker's (laughs) $20,000 motorcycle. And to the tune of American Badass, whips out his sledgehammer and just destroys this motorcycle on the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Triple H was so great. Oh, he was. Continues to be great. He still is. (laughs) Taker got his match with Triple H by having Kane kidnap Stephanie McMahon, hold her over a balcony, and threaten to drop her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Unless St- Commissioner Steven Regal gave him the match. And sadly, I'm not kidding. He attempted murder yet again. In <laughs> uh, a matchup I highly recommend, WrestleMania 17, Taker versus Triple H. The first match that they'll try to get you to forget later. Uh, <laughs> Taker beats Triple H and brings up his uh, his streak to 9-0. and mm-hmm. st- But they're still not calling it the streak yet. Yeah. Kane and Undertaker continued to focus on Triple H, who had formed an alliance with Austin to become the two-man power trip. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a lesser-known angle as uh, it didn't last too long, as unfortunately Triple H would blow out his quad here in the very sadly memorable moment in that one. But Austin would get the title at, at Mania that year, while Triple H would later get a hold of the IC belt. 
Kane and Taker, meanwhile, won the tag team titles from Edge and Christian. And the two teams would face off at Backlash in April of 2001 with the stipulation that whoever won got all the belts. <laughs> and what I hate about this is whenever there's a situation like this, it's always uh, the tag team belts that change hand. Like, how awesome would it be if Taker and Kane won? And they had to figure, and you had to watch segments with them trying to figure out who gets the world title <laughs> and who gets the, the loser Intercontinental belt. Oh, that would have been great. But two man power trip over. And as they had every belt in the company at that point, which was a feat that no one else had, has done as of yet, but we'll talk about that more when we're talking about either Austin or Triple H. Taker would take on Austin at Judgment Day for the belt. As Kane unfortunately got injured, but lost thanks to a, ham- a sledgehammer shot from Triple H. Taker's next feud would be thanks to the WCW invasion angle in the form. And do you remember, Joe? Uh, no. I'll give you a hint. He's really good at downward dog. Wait, what? At downward dog. Downward dog. It's a yoga position, Joe. Oh, God. DDP? Yes, sir. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is downward dog? <laughs> oh, man. So, yes. Undertaker's real li- wife, real life wife, Sarah, which, by the way, I didn't mention. One of the changes to the American badass character is having the word Sarah tattooed right across his throat. <laughs> Which kind of took away from the whole badass image. But you know what? Undertaker was cool enough to make it work. Well, I mean, a tattoo across the throat is no, uh, that's no, that's not exactly small change. So I'd say it's pretty badass in and of itself. It's like, yes, please drive this needle across my throat for several hours. Indeed. And you know what? It's a good testament to him. He realized this relationship was going to be forever. <laughs> so that's why you put that tattoo. Absolutely. And then, oh yeah, like him and Sarah, I'm sure are really, wait, wait, what's that? Oh, we already covered that he's with Michelle McCool now. (laughs) He would later get that tattoo removed? Okay. Yep. Anyway, (laughs) so someone was stalking Sarah and it was revealed to be DDP, an angle which made no sense because as everyone knew, DDP was dating Kimberly Page, who is a trillion times hotter than Sarah. Yeah, like the oddest Nitro girl. (laughs) Oh yeah. But the feud was, uh, you know, you would see DDP lurking outside Taker's house. (laughs) And then you would go back and he had this shrine dedicated to Sarah. Uh, DDP would would later state that this was kind of a mistake on his part as uh, he should have decided no. But he was just happy to be on board with WWE. So this uh, feud was very one-sided, sadly, as Taker as uh, the two didn't have a match at King of the Ring. They just met. And it was just Taker beating his ass, beating Paige's ass for like 10 minutes. The feud would continue and culminate at SummerSlam 2001, where Taker and Kane beat DDP and Canyon in a steel cage match, as Taker and Kane were the WCW Tag Team Champions and DDP and Canyon were the WWE Tag Team Champions. And this belt unified uh, the belts for the first time. As uh, Kane and Taker, leading up to the show, beat the natural-born Thrillaz on a uh, SmackDown. (laughs) 
The brothers then began to feud with with Chronic, as I mentioned earlier. Which, if you want to ma- if you want to watch a match, just for fun, because if you want to see a dream die on pay per view, as you just watch <laughs> Chronic whiz this opportunity to be in WWE down their leg, <laughs> uh, check out Unforgiven two thousand one as uh, the Brothers of Destruction go over Chronic. And you can see that funny interview with Taker I was talking about. Uh, eventually, they lost the titles to one of the greatest tag teams of our generation, Booker T and Test on SmackDown. <laughs> uh, from there, Taker would uh, join up with Kane, The Rock, Chris Jericho, and Big Show to take on Steve Austin, Kurt Angle, Booker T, RVD, and Shane McMahon at Survivor Series that year, which was the final battle between WCW and ECW with the WWE. The Alliance versus WWE, right? Yep. And finally, to put a bullet in this failed (laughs) feud here, uh, it was down to to Steve Austin and The Rock. You know, those two... uh, Those WCW mainstays, Steve (laughs) Austin... But The Rock went over, and the alliance was put to bed. Man, I mean, they really should have just held off on this angle, this whole invasion angle, until all those guaranteed contracts ran out for all the stars that you actually wanted to see invade the WWF. Indeed. Like, maybe hold uh, off until uh, <laughs> until Hogan and Nash and Flair and all of them are ready to come over. To, to give you an idea of how poorly booked this was, Ric Flair made his debut just after the invasion angle <laughs> Oh. Anyway, after this, the the company went through a, pretty much a gigantic reset. As you had to account for, you know, all the Alliance guys are now WWE, so you can't boo them anymore just because <laughs> right. they're WCW. And, you know, they were just basically changing things around. Yeah. One of those things that changed was Taker turned heel. <laughs> Take, by forcing Jim Ross, good old JR, to kiss... Vince McMahon's ass and join the infamous <laughs> Kiss My Ass Club. Oh, man. I mean, sometimes you just wonder that. I mean, like, there are some angles where it's like, clearly Vince McMahon just wants to get away with doing something just because he can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, I'm a form of a Kiss My Ass Club. And everyone's like, huh? <laughs> it's like, I can, I can imagine, like, if you go back to Steve Austin's interview that he did with uh, Vince McMahon on the network, uh, and you listen to Vince, you can tell he's kind of he's really out of touch with how things work. Oh, like yeah. he's talk he's talking about the joy of pushing people into a pool at one point, and he doesn't understand why why no one else does it. Which number one, because you're the boss and you don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, he then goes into a story about how Shane pushed him into the pool and he became furious, thus answering his own question. <laughs> Oh God! But yeah, the Kiss My Ass Club. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. But anyway, so Taker, by the way, who at this time sha- cut his hair and gone was the long hair, as he now has like a not really a buzz look. I would say uh, number two clip. Yeah, and started calling himself Big Evil. Hey, nickname number thirty. <laughs> and then at Vengeance of that year. Your Taker beat RVD for the hardcore title. That was a pretty good match. It was. It was. Definitely go check that out. The next matchup, that's uh, Vengeance 2001, folks. 
The next angle for Taker was at Royal Rumble 2002. As he was shockingly eliminated from the Royal Rumble by... Do you remember who, Joe? 2002? Yes. Royal Rumble 2002. 2002. Ah. Yeah, I'll give you a hint. He had just won a reality TV show. <laughs> oh, God, that's right. It was Maven. Yes. <laughs> I remember my jaw being down for like a good minute when I saw, when I saw him sp- drop kick Taker and eliminate him from the Royal Rumble. I was like... <laughs> Really? <laughs> oh, man. And that entire first season of Tough Enough is on the network, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, I hope they put on the other ones as uh, they were pretty good, especially the Austin one. Oh, oh man. man. Yeah. When <laughs> uh, We can get into that another time. But that's, oh, yeah. But yeah. Austin's season is hilarious. It is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he pooped his pants. Anyway. The uh, Undertaker would get enraged and eliminate Maven and then proceed to beat the holy tar off of him. The Rock would then poke fun at this at a later SmackDown, which ticked off The Undertaker, and he responded by costing Rock a shot at the undisputed title. Rock responded by helping Maven beat The Undertaker for the hardcore title. (laughs) They would then have a face-off at No Way Out 2002, which Rock won thanks to interference from Ric Flair as Vince tried to interfere for Taker and Vince and Ric Flair, who was sort of semi-feuding with Vince, you know, interfered back attacking Taker. Taker was pretty pissed off by this and challenged Ric Flair to a match at WrestleMania 18. And Flair declined, saying (laughs) he wasn't a wrestler anymore, but an owner. Taker said he responded with his... uh, with his uh, opinion, he, he understood his decision, but he countered by beating the crap out of David Flair. <laughs> He's like, counterpoint, I'm a wonker son. <laughs> like, you see, like, this footage, like, Ric Flair's in the ring, and then all of a sudden the Tron comes on, and you see Ia Taker, I think it's OVW, it's either OVW, yeah, it's OVW, you just see him walk into a training center where David is, and he finds him in the bathroom and just proceeds to, like, destroy him all over the bathroom. <laughs> oh, man. Probably the highlight of David Flair's time on t- television. Yeah. And also, I believe this was the very first time Charlotte was ever talked about on WWE TV. <laughs> as, as Taker then uh, threatened his daughter. Or so, Flair... Air said, all right, if you want this, you got it, and challenged him to a fight at WrestleMania 18. And with the step that this matchup was a no-DQ match. And I'll be honest, this is probably one one of my top three favorite streak matches. Yeah. Uh, It was really good. Flair still had it, as he was still a youngin'. And plus, Double A was in there, and at one part, he runs in, gives the Double A spine buster to Taker, and I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> However, Taker over in a classic. Uh, check that out, WrestleMania 18. Uh, I've written down uh, most of the matches I'll remember as, once again, it's a 30-year career, so I don't know if I write them all, but Joe, hopefully you can fill in the blanks. At Backlash 2002, Taker would beat Steve Austin and become the number one contender for the title. Then, in that same show, he helped Hulk Hogan beat Triple H and become the new champion. The logic of this, uh, he he knows he'll have an easier time beating up the old Hulk Hogan. And 
He turned out to be right. As next <laughs> month at Judgment Day 2002, Taker pinned Hogan and got his fourth world title. Taker would turn face, however, not too long after, besting Jeff Hardy in a ladder match for the title on Raw. And though Taker won, he uh, respected Jeff Hardy for uh, for the effort he gave and for showing respect, he turned face. Taker would then lose the title at Vengeance 2002. And folks, uh, I really recommend you check out this match as he lost it in a triple threat with Undertaker. With Undertaker, with Kurt Angle and The Rock in what is rega- still regarded as one of the greatest triple threat matches of all time. So do yourself a favor and check that out, too. Uh, SmackDown, Taker switched to uh, Ch- Taker switched uh, from Raw to SmackDown. As of this point, this is when the brand split was in full effect. As you would, uh, you didn't, didn't work both SmackDown and Raw... You were pretty much exclusive to one show, right? And so. this was largely in part because you know they, you know they absorbed WCW and it effectively doubled the size of their roster. Uh, so, oh, yeah. so you know they, you know obviously you couldn't put fit every single person into one two-hour show. Uh, so logic, they did the logical thing, I guess. Yeah. Taker then began a feud with Brock Lesnar, <laughs> the SmackDown champion at the time, who at this point was in fact the youngest. T- the youngest title holder ever. Mm-hmm. They had a double DQ uh, result at Unforgiven 2002, and then at No Mercy 2002, they did a Hell in a Cell match, which, two things to point out, uh, Taker, at this point in the career, is pretty much doing nothing but putting over people, and <laughs> he was very instrumental in getting Brock over like he did and made Brock look like a million bucks. And the other thing I want to point out, wrestled the whole match with a broken hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's when he had the cast, which he would punch Lesnar in the face with, <laughs> probably doing more harm to him than good. Oh, yeah. but, uh, but Brock over in that matchup. And Taker took his leave after Big Show threw him off stage, when in reality, aside from a broken freaking hand, he and Sarah just were expecting their first child. Then he returned at Royal Rumble 2003, resumed his feud with Big Show, and beat him via submission at No Way Out 2002 with his uh, his now signature uh, submission. You remember, Joe? The Hell's Gate? Yes, sir. The Go-Go Plata. (laughs) (laughs) Used by Inspector Gadget immediately at one point. But anyway, (laughs) A-Train would enter the feud and attack Taker after the match, which... Then he, Taker was saved for, by perennial favorite Nathan Jones. <laughs> Who could forget? Oh, I know WWE does. <laughs> I, I know Jim Ross does. Is he was the guy who insisted, no, he's ready. Put him in the rain roster. <laughs> so, so the story here being as originally this matchup at WrestleMania 19 was supposed to be Taker and Nathan Jones versus Big Show and A-Train. Now, in the storyline, in storyline, they'll say that they said that Big Show and A Train attacked Nathan Jones backstage, forcing this match to be a handicap match. But in re- but what is rumored to have happened? Now, do you know about Undertaker's ranch, Joe? <laughs> His ranch? Yes, sir. Um, uh, no, no. Well, the story the. With every WrestleMania, whoever his opponent is, he will stop. 
he will invite the guy to his ranch where they'll spend like a week to a month there. You know, Taker will take care of him, give him like a place to sleep and all that. And all they do is talk about the match Mm. at WrestleMania (laughs) and they map it out. They work it in the ring. Like he has his own ring there and they, you know, they practice the match and get it down so that it's perfect at Mania. Well, Taker invited Nathan Jones, Big Show, and A-Train. And it was supposed to be Nathan Jones' big break, but according to reports, he sucked so bad that both A-Train, Big Show, and Taker went to Vince and went went up to him and said, "Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Literally anybody else, please. It's it's not going to work, dude. Please. (laughs) So, Taker wins... uh, So, Taker wins a handicap match. Which only puts him up at, to eleven and zero, not twelve and zero. Yeah. Ah it... <laughs> oh, man, but yeah, not one of the best uh, matches for sure. Probably mm-hmm. under lower run of uh, Taker streak matches. Indeed, indeed. After this, Taker didn't have much else to do aside from a title match with Kurt Angle on SmackDown in September of two thousand three. No contest, thanks to Brock Lesnar interfering. <laughs> No Mercy, 2003, where he took on Lesnar in a biker chain match, but lost thanks to Vince McMahon interfering. And Survivor Series 2003 in a buried alive match with Vince McMahon, but lost thanks to Kane. He can't catch a break. Everyone interferes. (laughs) So Kane attacks him and buries him alive, claiming and uh, helps Vince win. He claims that his brother is dead and is buried forever. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember this, though, because uh, his return was very memorable. Mm-hmm. As sadly, though, this would be the end of Biker Taker. Mm-mm-mm. Indeed. R.I.P. to Biker Taker and his uh, exquisite taste in uh, in uh, <laughs> rap rock. And soup bones. <laughs> and soup bones and what have you. Oh, man. All right, and that would be the end of Biker Taker, but it was not the end of The Undertaker. But you folks will have to hear that in the next part of this episode. Yeah, because, boy, howdy, we'd underestimated the length of uh, this Undertaker episode. But uh, do stay tuned uh, for part two. You'll find it on the exact same feed and and place where you found uh, part one. So just uh, hang in there, folks. We'll see you in the next episode. Man walking. You've done it now. You've done it, made a big mistake. And I can't allow you to think you can just walk away. So turn around and face the piper you're gonna pay. Cause the end is now. This is gonna be a judgment day. A cheap shot.
Put back.